0: Bye. Mm-hmm. Welcome to the third episode of Word on the Street. My name is Rory, and I live and work in the downtown east side of Vancouver, which is located in the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, tsleil and Squamish First Nations. I'm learning about the place I'm in through the eyes and ears of my neighbours. Today, I'm talking to my friend Jenny, who orchestrated the performance sampled in the beginning. She has lived here for over a decade, and seems to know people on every street corner. We're talking about art, conflict, her work, and how it all relates to the Downtown east side. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Rory. <laughs> um, thanks for doing the interview with me. Let's get started. On your own terms, everybody has different things they find important. So on mm-hmm. your own terms, how would you describe yourself?
1: I've been trying to figure out how to describe myself for the past decade, so this is always a fun question. Um, Grew up in Seattle, moved to Vancouver um, about 12 years ago. I am an artist, an advocate, an outreach worker, a chaplain, pastoral prayer person. Did I say artist? Yeah, you did. Um, yeah, I, I do a lot of different things, and so it's hard to know exactly how to introduce myself to a lot of people. Um, but I am always finding ways to try to weave these things together.
0: You've lived here close to, over a decade, actually, twelve mm-hmm. years. Yeah. How did you arrive in the downtown east side from the states?
1: Yeah. So, well, I arrived in BC originally because I was going to university. So I went to Trinity Western University in Langley went there for four years wanted to be like went to school for arts and cross-cultural religious studies um so art was a major and that the religious studies thing was a minor and um I somewhere in that I think in my second year I came to visit the downtown east side formerly like I grew up in the country so I hated the city because I felt like anyone that lived in the city was an anonymous person, didn't have roots or connections to the people around them. And then I came to the downtown east side for a weekend to do some like class immersion thing. And I felt like I was in a small town. Yeah, it's just the way people interacted with each other and the way people welcomed me into the neighborhood felt very personable and just totally blew my expectations out of the water of what city living could be like. Then I kept coming back to the neighborhood over the course of my university time. At one time, I, I was I just stopped going to church because I felt like Jesus was more present in this area than he was in the churches that I was going to, and so I started coming every single weekend, like Sundays, for staying for as long as I could in the day, and then going back to the campus. Um, and when I graduated, I found. Um, yeah, there was a community, like a Christian community, that was in the neighborhood that I had gotten to know a little bit, and I decided I was just going to move in with them. Um, I didn't know what I was doing after school, and so that just felt like the next best step to continue this relationship with the downtown East Side.
0: Mm-hmm. Sounds like it was, you really fell in love with the downtown East Side. <laughs> it really, yeah, it wooed me big time. Um, so you came as a student and you moved in. Um, since then, you've played so many different roles. Can you tell me some of them?
1: Yeah, Um started out working at a nonprofit organization as a frontline worker. Um, and so it was essentially a soup kitchen and community center, and I was there for seven years, and I loved it. So that was probably the best way I could possibly get to know the neighborhood, because I would see 200 people a day coming through our program.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and everybody got to know my name pretty quickly, and I was pretty good at remembering names back in the day. I'm not now. So that was like full on immersion. And then this community house I was living in, we would have community dinners and we'd have like 40 people come 40 people. A night. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> it <was> crazy. <laughs> and as an extrovert, I was over the moon, happy about it. I was like, yeah, this is what life should be like eating with all your friends. Um, it was a place where I could invite anyone from the street over for a meal. Like I would meet someone earlier that day and be like, "Oh hey, we're doing dinner at my house later. Do you want to come?" and it was just such a receiving, welcoming place. Um yeah, so community house, that was community house number 1, and then that nonprofit organization I was with. I had an artist studio in the neighborhood. Um I also was pretty connected to a lot of the different Christian communities in the area, and so I was a bit of a floater. Um and there was several people who were street involved that were also very connected to several different communities and so I felt um, I kind of like followed them around to be honest <laughs> yeah and then getting involved in the activism communities we love marching down here a lot of good causes and um, so I got swept up in that in a good way and the arts community in the downtown east side is really vibrant and so having been here for 12 years I've had a lot of opportunities to collaborate with people I was involved in an artist collective called MP Studios. Um, I switched studios a couple of years ago, still in the neighborhood. Um, I now go to church in the neighborhood, it's a couple blocks away from where I live. Very downtown Eastside community centric.
0: Um, and I live in a community house called the Bird House. The birdhouse, yes, uh, birdhouse (laughs) has come up in the last two episodes because I've interviewed Robin and interviewed Noah, and they both live here. You were one of the visionaries who started the idea of a birdhouse.
1: Um, Yeah, so like I said, I'd lived in a couple different community houses since I've been down here in the neighborhood, and the first one was pretty intense, and like I said, 40 people over per night for dinner. When I had moved into that community the expectation was that um, you didn't even work. Like, you were living in that community house because you wanted to be a good neighbor to the people around you, and you wanted to be present and able to build relationships without having to worry about working a nine-to-five job, which worked for me at the time because I was just freshly out of university. And then I moved into another community house. I mean, there was a couple things in between that, but I was in another, like, house of all women, and our focus was to be a place of hospitality and safety, especially for women that were in vulnerable situations um, who could come in and feel safe and, um, yeah, find friendship and sisterhood there. So during the pandemic, everything got thrown out of whack for, like, obviously not just me, for everyone. And I felt like this housing is my only secure thing in my life at the moment, which is ridiculous because Vancouver's housing market is anything but secure.
0: Oh yeah, for, for everyone, <laughs> not just in the downtown Eastside. Oh, yeah, yeah, Vancouver.
1: But <laughs> exactly. especially here too. Yeah, it's just so ironic though, that I was like, this is the thing I can count on. And then the owners of the house decided they were going to sell because I wanted to move out to the country. And then I just went for a tailspin. I was like, oh no, what am I going to do? I felt committed to the neighborhood, um, but it's very, very hard to find housing in this area especially if you want to move six other people in with you (laughs) yeah yeah um so I'm a person of prayer so I was praying about it and asking God do I stay in the downtown east side or is this the time that I just move on to the next thing in my life I don't want to but I'm I think I'm open to whatever God had to say um but my prayer was that if I stay I want to stay on this block so my old house was on Cordova Street,
0: six houses away from this house. (laughs) So you really did stay on the same block?
1: Yes. Yeah, it's insane. It's so crazy. So I found this house kind of by accident, because it was in that time that I was like in a lot of turmoil and trying to figure out if I stay or go. And um, then I started dreaming, like, oh, if I do find a house in the area, I think I would love to live with other people that are really passionate about hospitality. And not just like hospitality, where you make a cup of tea for someone, and then like you're serving them the whole time. More like an informal, grab food. It's in the fridge. Like that's how I grew up. My mom always would beg me to invite my friends over, and then she'd be like, "Make yourself at home," and she wouldn't really wait on us. So that's what I'm used to. <laughs>
0: yeah. So sort of a uh, my house is your house in a mm. very, very real sense. People can come in and
1: like wash the dishes. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we have people. <laughs> one of our friends comes and just like washes the dishes until 2 a.m. It's lovely. That's a long time to be washing dishes. Yeah. <laughs> He's only done it once. Right. Um, yeah, but a lot of the vision around the house. Um, so I found this house one day when I was walking to a coffee shop around the corner. And they were moving stuff out of the basement. And I'd always had my eye on this place because, first of all, it's such a weird looking house. Covered in shingles, <laughs> even downside. Even yeah, the siding is shingles. It's the <laughs> ugliest house on the block for sure, <laughs> but there's a bit of a charm about it, and it's right on the alley behind UGM, mm-hmm. and I I really loved that about it, and so when I saw people moving stuff out of the basement, um, I asked them what was going on if if they were moving out or moving in, and they said they were renovating and they'd be renting it out, in the fall. And then I told them that's interesting because me and my housemates are looking for a place and we live just around the corner. And they said, oh, do you want a tour of the house? <laughs> and so walked in off, like literally off the street, got a tour of the house. Um, and then I asked them if they wanted to tour my house. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> I'm
0: like, my <laughs> house is just around the corner, do you want to see
1: mine? So
0: you show them your house too. Yeah. <laughs>
1: It just felt like a natural invitation. Um, Yeah, and from that day on, I I was like, this is the house I'm living in. And I just kept coming back. This was like three months before we moved in, and I came back at least once a week with a different person every week to show them the place. Wow. And at one point, I think the landlord was like, how many people are you going to move into? (laughs) Like, what's going on here? (laughs) So I found the house and was like, oh, man, I would love this to be super hospitable place Um, the words wild welcome kept coming to mind as i was praying and i didn't exactly know what that meant it sounds obvious right but i felt like there was nuances to it but i knew that that was going to be an important piece and then i also wanted it to be a house of prayer that there would be rhythms of prayer and eating together and yeah just living in this wildly other different way to how the world lives
0: that's awesome um, you've been in the neighborhood 12 years so you must have seen a lot of changes in your time too mm-hmm. um, what's changed in in the time
1: yeah that's a good question um, like you hope living in a neighborhood like this that things would get better but it really does feel like things have become more desperate and the community I mean So many people have died of overdose or other health situations and a lot of new people have moved in and I find that as the new people come, especially those that are more street involved, there's not as much of a sense of understanding the community. Like when I moved here, the street community was pretty tight knit and people looked out for each other and there was just a lot like I don't want to romanticize it, (laughs) but there was a deeper sense of. Of community and I don't know if respect is the right word but it just felt different Um, whereas now like I talked to other friends who are also chaplains in the neighborhood and they have felt the shift over the last five years especially which is kind of when the opioid crisis is intensified and so that is a huge shift for sure and I think with the gentrification too Um, The other prong would be people moving into the area who don't really have a commitment to the people that already live here and are just waiting for it to get cleaned up. And that is a community killer
0: as well, (laughs) you know, like for for people to move in and not really want to connect with the people already living here, that would feel almost disrespectful in some way.
1: I think that's a big vision behind this house as well as trying to be a third space where people who are like, more indigenous to the neighborhood can come and feel welcome, and where people who are maybe like newcomers to the neighborhood can also get to know their neighbors in a way that feels a little bit more natural. Because there's not a lot of spaces like that in this area. What does
0: third space mean?
1: Third space, um, the way that I understand it is that you have or I guess when you talk about nervous system, you have your fight fight system or your flight system. And then I think they added another one. I think they added nurture. Nurture. Recently. Hmm. Do you know much? I don't know.
0: Um, I've heard of fight, flight, uh, freeze mm-hmm. um, and, and fawn. Um, nurture, though, that's a really positive one compared to those four.
1: Yeah. Yeah, maybe that's not necessarily a part of that list specifically, but I think of third spaces as places that don't offer binary solutions
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> like you you either you're here because you fit into the condo community or you're here because you fit into the street community it's like no let's have a space that um people of different backgrounds can mix and actually rub shoulders of people that they wouldn't normally talk to or i don't think that people ignore other the other on purpose I think there's just an awkwardness and they don't know how to interact with someone who's so different from them and so for
0: me a third space is friend your work has often involved conflict um, exploring how people can navigate conflict in different ways um, can you talk a
1: little bit about that yeah um, I have always been interested in conflict engagement I think in the early years I would call it peace building And the longer that I've been in this field and learning from mentors, they prefer the term conflict engagement because it gives us understanding that conflict is not not a bad thing. Um, I mean, it can feel terrible when you're in the middle of it, but conflict is always an opportunity to connect. This is what they tell me. (laughs) This is what I'm learning. And so I'm really, passionate about conflict engagement because I want to see transformation and like all this third space stuff that I've been talking about so over the years it's brought me to a lot of different places Um, 2015 I went to Israel and Palestine mostly stayed in the West Bank, the occupied territories Um, and I was in Bethlehem for a month and really wanted to understand the conflict From being like on the ground they call it facts on the ground so you're actually like experiencing things firsthand Mm -hmm. instead of reading the news because perspectives I don't know I think it's really hard to be an unbiased journalist I don't think it's impossible but I think in this day and age especially when you're talking about a contested territory it's just hard to figure out like what's actually going on so I went there as an artist that's usually why I go to these conflict spaces, is as an artist, because I want to try to understand the world from an arts perspective. And I, I had a collection of sand and water that my great grandmother had collected as souvenirs from her trips to the Holy Land. She was a very devout Lutheran. And so my, my reason for going back to that place was to return the sand and the water to repatriate it and to try to understand what was going on there through that
0: action of return.
1: And then I came away with a lot more questions than answers.
0: <laughs> what sorts of questions?
1: I got really existential at one point because I was returning a bottle of sand to the Sea of Galilee, and then I realized that it was probably imported sand from somewhere else, because um, mm. it didn't match the the color of the place I was in. Um, And I started getting all metaphorical and thinking like, oh no, can anyone ever truly return to the place where they're from? What does return look like when there are Israeli Jewish people that go back to the land as right of return? And then there are Palestinians that have been like displaced from the land because these people said they have the right to return and the history of displacement in that that place goes back quite far and so um, yeah there's just a lot of questions and layers and nuances that it brings up and I think that's a big part of conflict engagement is realizing that yeah people come from so many different perspectives and like how do you it's not about getting on the same page it's about actually appreciating those differences and trying to work with the differences rather than whitewashing everything and saying, like, we have to be the same. Um, Yeah, hung out in Israel and Palestine, spent a lot of time in Northern Ireland as well, which is also quite a... has lots of history of conflict in multiple senses. And I've made a lot of really good friends who live on the island of Ireland, north and south, and have just been really inspired by the justice work that I have seen there.
0: So your travels to Israel and Palestine and Ireland, how has that brought clarity to how you see the downtown east side as contested territory?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The reason, I think a big part for why I went to Israel and Palestine, Northern Ireland many, many times over was because I didn't feel comfortable addressing the conflict in my own place. Um, yeah.
0: It's much harder when you live in the place yeah, and you have to look at it and question things.
1: Yeah, and the people who live around you hold you accountable. And I mean, not that I wasn't accountable in the other places I was visiting, but it was just there was more distance there. So I felt like I could have a bit more of an impartial um, or not impartial, but more space to come up with my own ways of dealing with the stuff that I was seeing. Mm-hmm. Whereas here it's so personal and I am <laughs> complicit in it as well, right? Um, so there's that owning of, of how I am a newcomer. Um, I'm obviously not indigenous to this place. And the downtown east side is really interesting too because not only is there like the, the massive displacement of the Coast Salish people when Vancouver was incorporated but there's also um, Hogan's Alley, which is an African Canadian community that got displaced during, I can't remember the times. So there was that, there was a Japanese Canadian community that was displaced from Powell Street, which we were very close to. Um, There's a Chinese community that went through like so much shit And, and the current street community that is experiencing a lot of displacement. And so it's just like kind of the epicenter of stuff happening in Vancouver.
0: Yeah, we we talk about um, street sweeps and displacing people from sidewalks who really have nowhere else to go, or chasing them out of parks. It's terrible to see people just have to pack up or have their stuff thrown away uh, by city workers uh, when they have so little already.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty devastating. Um, and this like the tent cities I think actually no when I first moved to the neighborhood there was a tent city because it was during the Olympics in 2010 um, where was it located near the Ivanhoe Hotel on Main Street and what is that Thornton Park right right next to that yeah there's a, a new building there now yeah so there were a bunch of tent cities that cropped up at that time it was like activist communities talking about housing, this sort of thing. Now, the tents, like, early when I moved here, there was never tents on the sidewalks like there is right now, so that is definitely a different thing. Like, you asked how things have changed in the last 12 years, like, that would be a big thing that I've noticed.
0: More, more people who are unhoused or have precarious housing. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's talk a little bit about your art. Um, Last June, uh, You orchestrated an art action, uh, titled Call and Response. It's based off, I understand, the Freedom Convoy, the horn sounds, um, as they drove through downtown Vancouver, (laughs) and you transcribed it into uh, a musical piece, and you got volunteer musicians to play it underneath the Burrard Bridge. Mm -hmm. Tell me about it.
1: Well, um, that was in February, I think, when the first convoy came through Vancouver. And I know that because I had just started a six-month program leading to an MFA. So it wasn't like an accredited class, but it was a deep-dive praxis, is what they call it, for creative research. And I had done a weekend intensive on sound work. It was called Sounding Bodies. Um, And I've always been interested in sound as an art form, but I've never really fully experienced or dove into it. and so woke up at 6 a.m because I'm it was like a UK based time schedule and so I had to get up super early and I think I was sick that week as well and so I was like oh I'm so excited to sleep after this um so we did this whole amazing workshop from 6 a.m to 12 noon and it was about sound and how emotive sound can be and um as an art form like how effective it is. And then I was so excited to close my computer and take a nap and then the truck convoy came through Vancouver and I'm not a napper at all. So it is incredibly ironic that like the one day I wanna sleep in the middle of the day, I can't because like for eight hours a day, the horns are going past her house. And at first I was really irate about it. And then I started seeing it from a sound perspective and like oh it's interesting how these people are voicing themselves because like normally protests are with people on the street yelling right it's like the human voice whereas this is like the trucks are being the voices for these people and it's just such a disorienting other way to protest and of course I have my own opinions but I didn't want to make it about my opinions I really wanted to explore like why what brings people together and what drives them apart and is there a way that I can use this form of voicing to create something different that would maybe invite engagement rather than pushing away. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I went on a little bike ride, went underneath Burrard Street Bridge and of course the horns were still going. But when I was under the bridge, I couldn't see the vehicles and it sounded to me like a brass band that was tuning and getting ready and it, it just totally flipped the script. It was so funny to me. And all I could think about was a marching band playing this music (laughs) or this sound. Like it just felt so ridiculous and absurd that I had to do it. And so I did with a lot of help from a lot of amazing people and musicians helping me transcribe it and then compose it into a 16-piece brass band score. And then to the musicians, a lot of the musicians I just met on the seawall as they were busking and I was like, hey, do you want to help me out with this thing? (laughs) And they are like, yeah, sure. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so we had, I think we had like 12 musicians
0: the day that you came.
1: Were you there for both times? I was there for one of the times. Okay, so you were there for the final performance.
0: Yeah, I think so. You had a zine as well that you handed out. Mm -hmm.
1: Yes. Yeah, so the zine had the score in it. And then the idea was that each time we played it, there would be a different variation. And so I asked the audience, well, tried to make the audience into participants and ask like, okay, we're going to do the second variation. I need a prompt or a theme or an idea. Um, And so, for instance, one of the ideas someone brought up was that the audience members would take the music stands that the musicians were using and carry them around, and the musicians would have to follow and play, and then it became a bit of a procession, anarchic parade (laughs) type situation, (laughs) which I hadn't planned for, so that was really exciting. And I think the surprising thing about this project was that the sounds themselves are so jarring. And when the brass horns play the truck sounds, it actually sounds like it could be truck traffic. But then there's this really exciting moment where it, it switches into a bit more of a dialogical, musical number. Um, and that's what I'm interested in, is that moment where, where voices go from like shouting at each other to actually conversing. And to explore that through music felt a lot safer than trying to write about it or yell it from a
0: street corner. That makes people pause and think. And in that moment of pause um, is the opportunity for the yelling to switch into actually listening a little bit more Mm. and thinking about what other people are saying. I think that's really valuable. What was the response or reception um, towards this piece of art?
1: I had a lot of feedback. I mean, I was up front, so I wasn't planted in the crowd. Like, you probably know more than me, because you were, um, you were. But I, one of my friends was telling me that this one woman walked by, or someone walked by as it was happening, because we were under the Burrard Bridge in that big gravel area, just off the dog path. And so people would randomly walk by, and someone came, and he's like, this band sucks! (laughs) friend was like, oh, I can see why you think that. This is actually what's going on. And so there was a lot of like little conversations, because I had a lot of friends there that knew what was going on. And so they could engage with people as they were walking by. From what I hear, there was a lot of generative response of like, okay, I think I see what she's doing here. Okay. That makes sense. I mean, it's a bit inflammatory. It can be seen as inflammatory and everybody has an opinion one way or another or at least they did when that was happening and so I wanted to try to catch people in a way <laughs> in their own prejudices or their own sense of self, self-rightness on either side and then I had other friends who were playing the horns who were, yeah, had a lot of different perspectives on what was going on but were really happy to be involved and included in creating something that was
0: just so totally weird. (laughs) Weird and so... I was sitting way back um, in the audience uh, and I was just watching everybody and some people were like trying to dance to it. (laughs) Um, There were people walking by who pulled out their phones right away and started recording. I didn't wonder if police was going to show up.
1: I thought they were for sure.
0: But they didn't. right? Yeah. I was just really happy to be there and experience it. It's definitely a whole body experience. It was so loud. The sound just yeah. <laughs> surrounded you from the head to toe. It was awesome. Oh man.
1: Yeah. That bridge is such a great place to play music under because the acoustics are so good. Yeah. I'd love to do something there again. And actually I'm not, like, I don't consider myself to be a musician, but it was really, it's been such a huge pleasure working with musicians who are really skilled at their craft and also learning how to speak about music and musical things in visual art terms was a challenge, but really fun because that was another dialogue as well of like, this is what I see. I don't know how to talk about it, but like, what do you guys think? And then they'd be like, oh yeah, that's blah, blah, blah. Like, This is how we would do it as musicians. And so there was all of this interdisciplinary dialogue happening. And that's, I mean, I'm going to be continuing to do an MFA in creative research. And so I want to continue
0: carrying that experience forward. And art has been so integral to the work you have been doing in this neighborhood. Um, You've also done murals, I understand. Where are your murals?
1: (laughs) Two of my murals are on Heatley. (laughs) (laughs) We're surrounded by them right now. There's one on Heatley and Hastings, which is the first community mural that I did called the Nest Community Mural, which is why this place is called the Bird House. And then there's one called Resilience Community Mural, which is on Alexander and Heatley. Um, So I can't take full credit for those because I worked with another artist for each of them and like 70 people in the community. Um, that was really fun to be able to create something that was not just my vision, but that was multiple people's visions and, and hopes for this area. And then in the last three years, I've done like six or seven solo murals, mostly in the downtown east side. A couple for Union Gospel Mission, did one for Catholic Charities, um, which is at St. Paul's, the Comox entrance.
0: <laughs> if you... I've seen it.
1: Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, I've done one there, um, i done a couple murals for Food Stash Foundation, which is outside of the downtown Eastside, so I'm like very much a niche downtown Eastside homeless shelter food space mural artist.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why is art so important for this neighborhood?
1: Um, honestly, I think that self-expression is like such a liberating thing for so many people, and. I'm very passionate about art as a way to invite people into something that's bigger than themselves. And also I just feel like sometimes language and words are insufficient for healing, for community building. I think that sometimes we kind of come to an impasse with words. And I I think that policy making is super, super important. Language is really, really important but also visual language is incredibly important as well. And people are innately creative. Like I I wouldn't go so far to say everyone is an artist because for me, that like devalues what I do as an artist. But I think everyone is innately creative and has something in them that is just like begging to come out and to create. It doesn't have to be like beauty, but to create something unique for the world. And so I want to give people mm, I don't know if it's give people the opportunity to do that, but like kind of help uncover that in the people that I'm around. And also like I am a Christian and believe that a God as creator, um, like we have that in us as well. Um, That's a big part of what I believe is our desire to create is because we are created beings. Um, And so there's that faith element as well.
0: Finally, um, for people who don't live in the downtown east side, who might only hear about the neighbourhood through news stories uh, or just general assumptions, what do you want to say to them?
1: I still believe, 12 years later, that this is a very vibrant community of people who are very generous towards each other with their time, with their friendship, with their hearts. I would say that the thing that first drew me to this neighborhood was that people were like truly wore their hearts on their sleeves and i'd never experienced that especially within christian community (laughs) now there's a lot of masking that happens Mm -hmm. um and so that i think is what first drew me in but just the yeah the vitality of this neighborhood and the life that you don't see if you're just driving through hastings and locking your doors like you can't understand a place from observing it from the outside like you really have to plant yourself in the area and get to know people and develop relationship and that would be my hope for people who have a lot of prejudice towards this neighborhood is that they would give the people a chance yeah I mean really I think the downtown side is a third space in all of Vancouver that it offers places for others to connect i i hear this all the time that vancouver is a really cold city but i've never like from living in east van like specifically downtown east side i haven't experienced that coldness Mm -hmm. in the same way that a lot of other people do and i think that that's a gift that our neighborhood has to offer the rest of the city is to say like hey like this is how you can be a neighbor come learn from us
0: if someone wants to look up your art and your work and follow your future endeavors, where can they find you?
1: My artist website is JennyHawkinson.com. Um, J-E-N-N-Y-H-A-W-K-I-N-S-O-N. I had an Instagram, but I just lost my phone and oh, can't no. access my account. Um But the last five years of art stuff I've been doing is at jennyhawk.art on Instagram. The new one is just jenny.hawkinson. I only have one picture on it so far.
0: All right. That's your new account, though. Yeah. So more to come.
1: (laughs) More to come. Yeah. It's wide open
0: space right now. Well, thank you so much for the interview, Jenny. Thanks for your time. Any last words?
1: Um come visit us at the birdhouse.
0: <laughs> yes, visit the birdhouse. I visit very often, <laughs> and everyone should too.
1: Come have dinner with us.
0: Thanks for listening. Please stay and listen to a recording of Jenny's call and response art piece. In the meantime, take excellent care of each other and goodbye for now. All right. <laughs>